dealing with. And we must treat the text with integrity, as I say, as to how it was meant to be conveyed to the people of the time before we can apply a Christian view to it today. And it was mentioned before in this series, the prophets were a pretty eccentric lot. And considering the enormous challenges they were facing, you can certainly have sympathy on their plight. Because during the times that they lived, they had to deal with the kings and kingdoms and all the other times they had to address the priestly groups. But more often than not, they had to address the children of Israel as a whole. Now, having spoke of the prophets being eccentric, I want to relate to you this short story on the, on the prophet Elisha. He's a very famous prophet. He was friends with Elijah, and he, he, he followed Elijah. And as we see in the following text in 2 Kings 2, 23 to 25, Scripture recounts this story. Then he, and they're talking about Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and they mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And when he looked behind and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up the 42 lads. And he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, uh, there's a couple of conclusions that you can draw from this story. Either Elisha's mother never passed on to her child the old adage, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Or in all likelihood, it was just a, a Jewish folktale. But you see stories like this in the Old Testament a lot. The Old Testament does not have the books in chronological order that, uh, that they appear. Uh, they are, they, however, having said that, the last uh, book, Malachi, probably was the last book chronologically. The date of the book generally set after the establishment of the Second Temple in 515 B.C., and before the reforms in Nehemiah in 445 B.C., the prophet is concerned with the things of the temple. And it is in the period the priests gradually became the religious and the political leaders with Israel. Malachi functions as a prophet, condemning the priests very harshly, as we see in chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and slaves honor their masters. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Malachi is calling the priests back to the correct way to sacrifice as depicted in the Torah. And in the Torah, you couldn't sacrifice animals that were blind or were blemished. And this was what was happening during this period. Other concerns from Malachi were the way marriages are being contracted with women who worship foreign gods. And a call to reconsider divorce because it upset the fabric of the community and the people were not fully supporting the work of the temple with their ties. There appeared at times a general feeling that it is hopeless and God had deserted them. The book has a unique form in that it sets out as an exchange a series of questions and answers between the prophet and his hearers. This may be an adaption from an earlier genre used by the pre-exile prophets who used to form a lawsuit to bring home to the listeners 
that they were about to be judged. Here in Malachi, the questions are both of an accusatory nature and a proclamation of what is to come if they repent. Now, one of the most important chapters and verses in this book is Malachi 3, 1 to 5, where you read that God will send a messenger. But in order to understand it in its full context, you have to hear the question that's proposed in Malachi 2.17. And like I mentioned, Malachi 2.17 sets the question for the answer in 3.15. It contains the most profound and yet indirect question to God. Where is the God of justice? God will send a messenger to the people to prepare them for God's appearance in the temple. But an unnamed messenger who the Jews identify as Elijah and the Christians identify as John the Baptist. Whoever it is, the purpose is to be the precursor to the person who is going to judge the priest and then against those who commit unjust practices as named and in the Ten Commandments. Verse 5 states, The Lord is coming to judge the evildoers and corrupt priests and therefore justice will seem to as to prevail. And the answer to their question, where is the God of justice, will be seen at work in their lives. If the people had feelings of hopelessness because the priests were corrupt, and this message still strongly affirms that there will be a cleansing and a new order will be established, which will please the Lord. Furthermore, the lax morals of some people in their community will be exposed and they will be punished. And the strong message is the one of judgment by God on religious and ethical wrongdoers, which ought to give new hope for those who feel that the community has sunk to such depravity and therefore is not worth worrying about. God will be seen as establishing justice in spite of their accusations of 217. And once the people see this cleansing... They will return fully to the covenant relationship with God and cooperate in efforts to reverse the downward spiral of their community, community's religious and ethic wrongdoing. Now Jesus does not present himself as coming in judgment on priests and those who break the commandments, but as one who identifies with our humanity in baptism and calls us to be in relationship with God. He puts people before law. He relates to the outcast, and he forgives those who betray him. It's well to note the difference and give integrity to both the Old Testament and the New Testament proclamations. We ask the question within the gospel message about how sinners are punished for unethical and immoral behavior. Does God send bolts of lightning upon a person intervene with creation, impose some illness or cause an accident. Some people believe this is the way God brings punishment. Others believe that the Holy Spirit works through our conscience and gives us the means to to repent and redress the wrongs that we have done. Living with the hurt we have caused is often an ongoing punishment and lives on through the consequences of our behavior. Now there's a beautiful verse in the book of Micah that goes, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
In in doing justice, we don't want to put ourselves above others. It's the golden rule in practice. We don't approve or promote systems that disenfranchise others, even though we ourselves might not be affected. In fact, doing justice means we act in a way to turn the the order of injustice upside down. We do something about it. God sent Jesus not to make a difference in the world, but to make the world different. And in addition, it's not just to make adjustments to the social order, it's to replace it with the values of the kingdom of God, love and justice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and Lutheran pastor who stood up to the Nazis and Hitler toward the end of World War II and was executed for it, famously says, We should not merely bind the wounds created by the crushing wheel, but to destroy the crushing wheel itself. Think what the church would be like if we did not merely heal the sick, but destroyed sickness. Not to just love one another, but to eliminate hatred. What would our ministry look like then? Now after the prophecy of Malachi, there's a silence of 400 years. Remembering this is the last book in the Old Testament. Israel does not hear from God. And when John the Baptist appears, his message picks up exactly where Malachi left off. Through John the Baptist, God finishes a sentence he begun 400 years ago. I am about to change the world. In all his teachings, Jesus referred to the divine authority of the Old Testament. He quoted the Old Testament 78 times. The Pentateuch, uh, 26 times long, Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. He quoted from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. You can see how many times he refers to the prophets here. He referred to the Old Testament as the scriptures, the word of God and the wisdom of God. And the apostles quoted 200 times from the Old Testament, 209 times I should say and considers it the oracle of God. And an oracle simply means a a speech delivered by a human that claims to be a message from God. Now, just because Jesus has established a new covenant doesn't mean we write off the Old Testament. The prophets were important to Jesus. What they had to say should be important to us. What was happening back in the day of Malachi, and we can even go further back in the day of Isaiah, and of course in the day of Jesus, is still happening today. Malachi mentions divorce and and what that does to the family unit. And we know that over 50% of people getting married now will eventually separate and be divorced. Another issue was uh, considering that all we have comes from God, and how much are we going to tithe back to God? And this is a sermon, the Malachi is a sermon ministers use throughout on that one day a year when they have to ask about raising money. Malachi is who they refer to and also in Leviticus. And one of the biggest sins in the Old Testament was not offering hospitality to the sojourner or the foreigner and not taking care of the widow or the orphan and especially ignoring the plight of the poor. It is all happening 2,600 years later. And these are the same issues that Jesus brings up in Matthew 25. The Old Testament and the New Testament agree that one of the biggest sins 
is the treatment or the lack of concern and compassion for the least of our sisters and our brothers. The late Dorothy Soli, the German theologian that taught at Union Seminary in New York, says that we must be concerned about life before death, before we consider life after death. If you want to summarize all the prophets in just two words, it would be, wake up, folks. And there's an old proverb that goes, slow down so God can catch up with you. We're talking about how fast a pace of life we live. I don't need to say anything further. We know what that means. We are often asked when we do street ministry, where is your church? And one of the answers I give them is right here in the street. We often confuse the structure that we worship in as being the church. And in reality, it's really the congregation. And again, we often misunderstand the term ministry. What our congregation did this weekend was ministry. When people came in at all hours of the day to set up the sale, that was ministry. When our ladies get together on Tuesday to sew and put together quilts to give the others, that is ministry. When cookies are being baked for the sale, that's ministry. Those who play the music for our church, that's ministry. When we are present with a friend or relative or even someone who don't, we don't know, and we console them during their suffering, we're doing ministry. I know there are times when we think, well, we are such a small church, we can't do what the bigger churches do. Well, let me tell you with someone looking at this church with fresh eyes. I've only been here six months. But this church really accomplishes a lot in a quiet way. One example would be the street ministry part of our missions. We don't wait for those who are suffering to come to this. We bring our ministry to them. It's not important what other churches are getting done or not getting done. We are doing something. We can't worry whether the city is helping the poor. We are doing something. And if the state and federal governments neglect those who are suffering, this small church is doing something. We are staying focused and we understand what Jesus requires of us. And Luke seven twenty seven tells us that this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. You know, it's interesting that the people who surrounded Jesus himself They were just everyday folks. John the Baptist, who wore camel skin and ate ate locusts and wild honey, baptized Jesus. If John would appear today in this sanctuary, we would all probably get up and run for the exits. Many of his disciples were just simply blue-collar people. He surrounded himself with an eclectic group of people. Men and women followed Jesus during his ministry. In fact, women financed his ministry so that he could travel and proclaim the word of God. Now understand now that we are an extension of Jesus' ministry. We are the 21st century disciples of Jesus Christ. We have the same flaws as his disciples had back in the day. And it was a learning process for the apostles of old, just like it is for us today. And may this congregation continue on living the gospel and proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Christ. Amen.